Rock and roll. Kia ora, everybody. What's up? It is Rebet. Welcome to Rebet Live, episode 289. Knocking them out. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, introducing, without further ado, been on here before, adds lots of great banter, the man, Ashley Church. AshleyChurch.com. How are you, my friend? I'm very, very good, Robert. Good to see you all the way over there in San Fran. Keeping it rocking. Um, also, I forgot to say you're also the chair of the Taxpayers Union. So there's lots of uh, money stuff we can also potentially get into as well. Um, I haven't talked to you in a, a little bit, buddy, but let's maybe um, from the last time we spoke to today, what would be the biggest thing that you feel has potentially changed in Aotearoa since, um, let's say, a year? Because um, I think we connected up through um, when it was maybe lockdown or maybe just after or whatever. So it's a year later little mini refresh how have we done what's on your head and, and how's the precious reality of how you think um we're doing to potentially not so doing go yeah, interestingly keep it keeping in mind sort of full disclosure i'm in a bit of an echo chamber in that um what i see probably comes from a particular perspective because i talk to particular people and deal with things in a particular way but for me um relative to i think where we probably expected the country to be post-covid it's in a very different position and in a lot of ways it's actually doing pretty well um, and, but, but, but that's nuanced because it's doing well in some respects. Uh, the economy seems to be tracking along. Property market's doing well. Uh, job market seems to be doing pretty well. The flip side of that is that we've borrowed a truckload of money as, as a nation in order to sort of keep the, 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 things, the, the, the wheels turning. Um, and, and there still seems to be some pretty scary indicators when it comes to some of the social things that we're, we're trying to solve as a country. So we've kind of got this, this game of two halves going on at the moment. We've got a country which is doing better, I think, than many of us had expected it to be doing. And then on the flip side of that, we've got um, a, a, some ongoing social niggling social issues that we still don't seem to have resolved and lots of talk about them and not much actually being done. So it's a very, very strange time at the moment, even though COVID's not actually affecting us to any great degree, other than the reminder, obviously, through the international news of what's going on elsewhere in the world. Good, good point, Ashley. And one of the things from our chat last year with uh, Rob Fife, I remember we talked about, he said, you know, this isn't about um, pre-COVID, uh, post-COVID, there's actually going to be this bit in the middle, which we don't know, which will be during COVID. And yeah. I think in my head at the time, maybe potentially naively, I'd thought, oh, we're just going to knock this out a couple of months. And then after, um, you know, and then he sort of said, well, this may, this may last, we don't know how long. And if it does, then there's going to be a pretty um, big stack in the middle. So on that, right. So, um, you know, you, you understand the property game pretty, um, pretty well. You've done a bunch in that space. I was talking to a friend of mine who's the head of commercial for one of the big real estate companies. And I said, How's the energy actually been on the ground? He said, well, to start with it, obviously, everyone went silent and dead. And then the second, you know, we win when there's when there's moves in the market, when a bunch of people are, you know, um, sort of transitioning out. And now that's exactly what's happening. So there's it's even busier in flat tech and every business, if they're looking to to reshift or to downsize or to do remote or to whatever it is, they're actually more than ever from a property side. Did it do what you thought it would do in the last 12 months? Or were you surprised um, with how the market actually potentially kick back busier than ever? I think everybody was really surprised, to be honest, Robert. My my position at the time, you may or may not remember, was probably less pessimistic than most was in that I thought the market would pretty much just stay stable. And the reason for that was because COVID was basically, in my view, was going to be a period of stasis, which meant that nothing much was going to happen. It wasn't going to go up. It wasn't going to go down. It was, it was just going to stay where it was. Um, there was lots of people predicting that it was going to drop 5, 10, 15, I think in one case, 20%. So there were some pretty pessimistic views against which mine was, was, was regarded as relatively optimistic. 
the reality is what's happened it's done exactly the opposite it's it's gone gangbusters um Mm. And and it's done that for a couple of reasons. One of them is I think it's sort of a psychological thing in that there was so much expectation that it was going to go badly, you know, sort of people covering themselves and they're being attacked, that when we actually came out of the first lockdown and saw that it hadn't gone as badly as people thought it was going to, I think that sort of almost fed a, a sort of a, not that euphoria is the wrong word, but some confidence to get back in and start spending in the market again. But the other thing, and I think this was the strongest um, impactor in terms of what's happened to the market is that the Reserve Bank, rightly or wrongly, last year dropped interest rates through the floor, mortgage interest rates through the floor through the OCR, or, or impacted on the market in a way that influenced those rates to drop. The result of that was that money became real cheap. Money's a commodity. If it gets cheaper, you can spend more of it. So effectively, what happened was people were in a position where not only were they feeling more confident than they expected to, but money was cheap. So they went out and they spent uh, in huge amounts. And in, and in fact, I think we're obviously still coming through. It's not completely finished, but I think by the time this this 12-month period's over, we're going to see that this was the biggest single rate of of capital growth in any 12-month period in the history of the country, um, which is bizarre, yeah, given what's going on elsewhere around the world. So the figures I've seen are median prices increasing by something like 25% in one year. It was huge. Well, what has been pretty clear in the, in the States and stuff anyway is everyone's been locked up. All of a sudden, they can get let out, and everyone's had a bunch of discretionary money, which hasn't been spent on holidays and trips and sure. bits and pieces, and they're just All basically going to going to town. And then you, you mix that with when there's um, those lower rates, people spend more, and then next thing you know, um, the market's going gangbusters. And funnily enough, that's exactly what's happening in, in, in the states as well. So maybe just on the um, maybe I'll, I'll put kick back a little bit on that. There's been a big bit of a fair, and I'm obviously you know failed high school didn't do too much of the money stuff, but I've been understanding about the world of inf- rising inflation. <laughs> uh, and then in the States, I believe it was 5.6% that just potentially came out. Um, do you think this potentially impacts at all on um, inflation at all for how does it potentially affect New Zealand? Or do you think this is just kind of like, how do you think that goes hand in hand? Obviously, free money floating around, but then price of stuff goes up, people spend more. How does it, how do you think this plays out in the next 12, 12 months? Let me give you a real simple snapshot to the answer to what should be the answer to that versus what's currently going on. So so what we currently call in the US quantitative easing, which is essentially the printing of money, the creation of credit, is what we used to call social credit. So if you go back to the to the 80s and the 90s, New Zealand actually had a political party called the Social Credit Party, and they were based on a philosophy back in the 1930s, which was that if you wanted to develop infrastructure in your country, you could basically create the money out of thin air and you could go and spend it on bridges and schools and houses and all sorts of other things, which to be fair, coming out of the Great Depression was exactly what happened in this country. Um, the Labour government under Michael Joseph Savage essentially through a social credit or a quantitative easing program basically went out and developed huge infrastructure and you know we look back on it now and a lot of the things that we take for granted actually came out of that program. The problem with that in more, more modern times in, in terms of the international monetary system is that the fear is if you create money which isn't backed up by any tangible asset that it becomes inflationary. So, so uh, essentially over time um, if, if you're creating more money, the money's worth less, therefore that pushes inflation up and so you get runaway inflation and, and, and prices get out of control. And for that reason, New Zealand and Australia, when, it, when, when the United States and the United Kingdom and Europe and Japan earlier than that went into these quantitative easing rounds where they started printing money to, to get their economies uh, going again, New Zealand and Australia kind of held their nose and stood back and said, well, we're not going to do that because it's inflation and we're better than that. Hasn't caused inflation. It's been going now for over 10 years, I think, in the States. Um, and hasn't really hasn't impacted on inflation to any great degree. So now New Zealand and, and uh, I think Australia as well have basically said we'll, we'll have some of that as well. So over the last 12 months, 
we've been going through this round of, uh, we've given it a different name, but it's essentially the same thing that the Americans are doing, of essentially creating additional credit within the money supply, within, with, within the monetary system in order to um, essentially kickstart the economy. Now, the irony of that is that, it, it, you know, you, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Did that cause the, the confidence in the economy that we're now seeing, or, or was this always going to happen and we didn't need it to do that? I don't think anybody still knows the answer to that. We're probably not going to know for another two or three years until we can sort of look back on this thing theoretically. Um, but so we're now in this really interesting situation in that we've got uh, a strong economy, uh, a lot of money sloshing around, and, and as far as we can tell so far, no inflation, although there is a fear that that's going to start to take off again, and that's why the Reserve Bank's starting to look at increasing interest rates over the next three or four years. Well, I heard in the States, I think it was at the last 12 months, they printed more money than the entire history of America in the last 12 yep. months for all the cash that's been coming out as well. Yep. If uh, New Zealand, do you, how how much do you think New Zealand would potentially take lead if you're saying it's like, hey, we'll have a bit of that too? And what percentage are we doing it differently to what the Americans did? Like they've done, say in the last year, they've done the most in history. How much do you think New Zealand would be doing it in comparison to um, the revenue? Well, if you asked me that question six months ago, I probably would have had a different answer. I think the appetite now is probably... Um, tape it off and and I think the feeling now is that that's probably not something that we want or, or indeed need to do so so whatever we've done so far I don't think you'll see much more of it than that um, mm. what what the concern about now is is how you keep because the remit of the Reserve Bank in theory is to keep inflation under control so their, their responsibility is to keep inflation between one percent and three percent and if it gets below ten but one percent then they tend to do things to to increase activity things like dropping interest rates and if it gets above 3%, then they tend to do things like raise interest rates because that, that slows down economic activity and keeps inflation under control. So at the moment, the talk's exactly the opposite. The talk's about saying, hey, look, inflation might get beyond that 3% um, uh, band, and therefore we need to be doing things to slow down the economy. And that's where you've got a Reserve Bank that's currently talking about increasing interest rates um, in order to, 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 I guess, slow down the appetite for people to go out and spend. Well, I saw in the States when they went to 5.6, they were thinking it was, um, you know, basically weakening the dollar by such a substantial uh, amount so fast that's going to um, cause danger. And then I think with some of the their housing stuff, they'd basically put things in place where, you know, owners couldn't kick out people if they hadn't paid rent and yada, yada, yada. And then, you know, I, I always just get intrigued with when they do make moves at such a bigger scale when there's hundreds of millions of people doing it, you know, not that we potentially lag behind, but I'm always very intrigued to see, you know, so much of our culture and so much of, um, you know, our, our content and media and news and entertainment, everything is driven out of this, this American ecosystem. Um, when numbers like that pop up, I get kind of a little bit uh, nervous. I'm like, Oh shit! Is that is that good for us? Or is that bad for us? And I, you know, when you travel more and whatever else is obviously travels something I haven't been able to do at the moment. But um, <laughs> yeah, so do you get do you feel like let's say five is like meh, zero is like no dramas whatsoever, and ten is like holy shit, the sky's falling down, and this is the worst <laughs> thing of all time. We're gonna all gonna burn and burn and die. How is your um, vibe around the economic um, stability and resilience for the current market conditions with obviously the borders closed and stuff? If you if this was to go on for the next two years uh, interestingly it's, if, if one's low was it your scale one, one's ones it's not really a problem yeah. tens it's the worst thing yeah so if, if, if one's low i'm probably only a two or a three in terms of its risk but i have some other hmm. concerns about the country so so in terms of the economic stability Ooh. yeah so in terms of the economics of the country, yeah. I think 
We're actually in a benign space at the moment. The two concerns I've got are what's, what's just over the horizon. And the first of those, and this is a political statement, but I, I, you know, which you would expect from me, um, is, is politically, in, in respect of the policies of this particular government, we are returning to an era which is not unlike the, the area that we had under Rob Muldoon between 1975 and 1984. So Muldoon was actually oh, those a national were the days. Those, those were those the days. <laughs> I remember that. <those. laughs> well, tell, tell you why that's important, though. Um, he was actually a national prime minister. That was a national government, but it was a control government. It was basically a government where the prime minister believed that he knew better than everybody else and that he could solve the problems of the economy. And he put in place, Robert, these bizarre uh, mechanisms to try and... He brought in something isn't to awaken... Just quickly, well, isn't that dictatorship if it's just like your idea only? <laughs> it, it bordered on it. it, bordered, yeah, it, it for people who were alive at the time, they would argue that we weren't far shy of a dictatorship. So he was an interesting fellow. He brought in this thing called the wage and price freeze, which basically uh, was a law that said uh, wages and prices can't go up. So, you know, King Canute, basically, if you pass the law, it won't happen. Complete failure. Um, it was on for about two or three years, and when it came off, inflation just went through the roof. It went absolutely nuts. Um, he bought on this thing called carless days, where you had to put a sticker on the, the window of your car, and you couldn't drive on the day that the sticker designated. So if it was a Tuesday, you couldn't drive on a Tuesday. There was all sorts of things. Um, and it was a very, very strange time. And so he was followed by by a Labour government, which came in, which did a whole lot of things that you would traditionally expect from a national government. But Roger Douglas came in, brought in Rogernomics, and in my opinion, fixed the country, put the country back on its feet. The current regime um, is is kind of uh, a reincarnation of Muldoon. It's doing very much. It's, it's talking about doing the same things. It's talking about regulation and controls and trying to dampen down parts of the economy that it doesn't like. And for those of us who were around in those days, we're starting to see kind of a, a reemergence of Muldoonism. Uh, and and because we remember the impact that had on that country, we're, on our country, we're concerned about what that might mean. So that's the first one, and that's a that's a philosophical mm. position, and we could argue back and forth whether that's a good or a bad thing. But the other one, and this is what you got you and I talking about a couple of days back, um, is is the increasing trend toward uh, racism, which has probably always been there uh, in our country, but I'm seeing some really scary indications at the moment, which you know we can probably unpack this a little bit about why it's happening. But I'm seeing some pretty scary indications at the moment about uh, in terms of where our country is going in an area where I thought we were making some real progress over the last 20 years and we seem to be going backward. Yeah, so unpacking the first point, so basically saying um, Jacinta is a dictator, is that what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm saying that Jacinta and Grant are showing some some, uh, very, very eerie signs of being Muldoon's children. So, uh, jeez, oh, and just just for context, is that because of the way that they've had to structure certain laws and rules to try and keep everything going? Of like, hey, this is what we have to do. This is how we go. Like, like just. Oh, sorry. Yes, then. Yes, in terms of, in, in terms mm. of what they're indicating they want to do, there's a whole range of things looking at being introduced. Got it. Um, but but more around uh, their ideology. And look, to be fair, people are entitled to hold an ideology, and and they were a government that was elected more than fifty percent of the vote, so they are absolutely entitled to do some of the things that they're currently doing. So my concern is not to say that they're not, they're not they shouldn't be doing this and not allowed to. My concern is to say I know what the implications of these actions are. And if you continue doing this stuff, as much as you might think it's a good thing, the impact of it's going to be absolutely the opposite of what you believe it's going to do for the country. I guess, I guess that's where I'm so, at the moment. Yeah, got you. So, so commercially, like, great job, we're winning. It's not as bad as we thought. But looking over the horizon, a little bit of fear of if 
you, you know, socially, rather started, some, real, was, some real division socially, which wasn't there even five years ago. Um, which I would interesting. disagree with me on this, but I would argue is being at least to some degree created by the government. So uh, commercially stable, but community uh, unstable and culture unstable, which probably leads yep. directly. Yeah, okay, I, I, I can see that. And it's also, I'm imagining as well, if you've seen it happen before, you know, when history repeats itself and you see it, then it's like, okay, this thing is coming. It's a wave. I get that. Okay, so now phase two, racism. So um, I've obviously got some thoughts, but I think <laughs> at a macro, it, it feels, it feels, um, that the PR shine of culture that has been going pretty unopposed publicly for the last, say, five years, maybe we can say since maybe in New Zealand with the, the tohu and a, and a bunch of other stuff that's been integrating in, um, yeah. there's been a quiet burning underbelly of private conversations and feelings by the masses that haven't been able to potentially go public because it make it looks like they're against it. And we saw the same waves with, let's say, um, um, men and women's rights, LGBT, LGBTQI plus, um, and you know the, all these other different things. Where if there's a wave of momentum going for something, and one person publicly says against it, they are just flipping insta cancelled from from society, right? And it feels like cultures almost had like a bit of a maybe. I'm not saying free pass, but basically no one's really. Um, it's been pushed to the forefront of great great PR and, and engagement, but the silent ones that were against it or whatever, their true feelings have come up potentially even a bit more viciously behind closed doors. Is that kind of... You, kind of. So I'd, I'd, go, I'd go back further than five years in terms of this sort of appearance of calm. I reckon it's, that goes back to the mid-80s. Okay. And again, it actually goes back to the Labor government in, in 84 to 90 who, who, who were very after much Muldoon. around... Uh, no, after Muldoon. Um, Douglas and Lowe. After Muldoon, yeah, yeah. Yeah, who, who were very much around uh, getting rid of the last vestiges of, of, of British colonialism and, and, and making us a multicultural nation in, in, in ways which, in my view, were relatively, but I were actually good for the country. However, there has always been uh, a, an undercurrent of racism in this country that goes back way, way, way back. And let me give you, so let me give you my own journey on this, because it's probably instructive in terms of, I think, where a section of New Zealand society is at. So I come from Napier. Uh, brought up here, um, it came from a pretty poor uh, working class family, um, which had, if, if I'm to be fair, uh, probably a, a view of Māoridom, uh, which wasn't particularly inclusive. Um, now, I grew up, I, I had a different mindset than my parents. I, I As you know, I've been a, a sort of right wing in my views for most of my life. My parents were Labour people, so I, I changed my, my, my perspective on on society was different from these pretty much from the moment that I could vote. But I've always had a much more nuanced view when it came uh, to Māori and this whole concept of an egalitarian ethic that New Zealand believes that it's sort of adopted for the last 150, almost 200 years. Um, and in, in between 1989 and 19, uh, 1980, I was on the Napier City Council. And early in the early 90s, the Napier Council decided that it was going to have something called a cultural sensitivity workshop. And the idea behind this was that it was going to teach councillors, me included, um, about Māoridom so that they could be more sensitive toward the needs of, of the Māori community. Now, at the time, I and, I and I didn't just not go to it, I made a fuss about it publicly. I went out to the public and said, this is racist, we shouldn't be doing it. It's a mistake to be having a, 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 a essentially a workshop which favours one section of our community. Now, what I need to say to you, though, is the reason I did that was because I genuinely believed that I was being equal, that by doing that, I was I, I was taking an equal view and treating all of society the same. 
as I've got older, and it's been a slow transition, it's taken me probably 30 odd years, but as I've got older, I've taken a, a much more nuanced view of what that is. Because the problem with that view, and I think a lot of Kiwis hold it, is that it presupposes that there's one particular way of doing things. It's a bit like the British when they went around the world and they colonized it and their view was, you know, we want to be equal, but equal means doing things our way. And, and pretty much forgetting whatever you did in the past to, to whatever people they might have found in the, in the various nations that they conquered. Um, and, and I think Kiwis, for all the right reasons, a lot of Kiwis did that because they felt that if only everybody would do the things the same way, we'd all be equal. The problem with that was it didn't recognise that people don't necessarily want to do things in the same way and they've got different cultural traditions and different history. And, and while there might be parts of the new society that they've been adopted into that they're comfortable with, there's also going to be parts of it that they want to do differently. It took me a long time to get my head around that and understand mm. it. And as I've understood it as I've got older, I've recognised that you need to be a lot broader in your perspective and you need to recognise that there are some things that you might not want to do that other people do and the, the society has to incorporate all of those viewpoints. Now, the problem I've got at the moment and, and I think that, that New Zealand's got better and better at doing that over the last 20 or so years. What I'm seeing at the moment is a reversion to a pretty naked racism that really worries me. And I know, for example, you've got a Facebook at the moment, and there are a number, it's not just one group, there are a number of groups yeah. to, uh, th th pushing this whole concept of the idea that there is only one name for our country and it's New Zealand. And, you know, Aotearoa is racist, and if we use Aotearoa as a name, that we're, you know, somehow we're, we're, we are... We are uh, uh, compromising our values as a nation, which is just nonsense. And, it, and it's really extreme stuff. I saw one a few weeks back where somebody was saying, they were talking about Abel Tasman, um, who was who was the man who supposedly named New Zealand, hmm. um, being a great man. And so the inference was that some dude who, who sailed past, didn't even, didn't even come onto our shores, uh, saw the country from a distance and gave it a name, was somehow more important and his views were more compelling and needed to be noted more than people who lived here for a thousand years. And actually, who had determined what the name of the nation was. So it's that kind of stuff. It's that kind of nonsense, which really mm. worries me, Robert. It's getting worse. Um, and that was a long rant, but that's kind of where I'm at the moment. No, no, no. I, I, I get it. I mean, the first part is um, kudos to you for uh, over time being the, like my mum would always say, you know, like you, there's two ways to, 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 to break ice or to break it down. You can either smash it on the, grow, on the floor, or you can hold it in your hand and let it melt. And clearly, your views for it over the, the longer term by being exposed to it has enabled you to mount. I pray, I, I guess in many ways I've been uh, blessed and cursed because, you know, mum's Pakia, dad's Māori from, um, from Waipuido Bay. And um, the bit that I've always, what I would notice, and it, well, it took me years to, is there would be different worlds, like because I could hang with both and it doesn't matter for me because it's just like, you know, crew and crew and boysies, boysies. But the way that the energy would, would change you would never know unless you were in it it's why like you know when people either go to the marae for the first time or they you know i've been in scenarios where we're in a big room and there was you know um you know 15 or 20 maori and pacifica all sort of set together and the whole energy and the dynamic change of the entire room because this the camaraderie and the the the, the, the love and the, the the vibe will change and it was interesting watching um non-maori pacifica um react to something that they felt they were missing out on because they they weren't sort of there and so to to your point i think when you're getting older you've just been able to see a bit more of an open perspective of the the upside and, and values for it and a big one for me that i've kind of been getting on a little bit recently is this idea that what was seen as a huge liability around a culture for new zealand for, by many of like oh those poor maoris and blah blah, blah. now it's becoming our, one of our biggest assets right because it differentiates us as a people and the culture and the land and all the rest of it and so the, my 
I was having a conversation with someone in the um, in, within Māori Dam yesterday about it. I said, I've got a concern personally wearing my commercial hat that I actually feel culture is about to get extremely exploited the same way time, so much different things have done for so many different generations, so many different other uh, worlds, that the commerce that gets done out of the culture isn't actually going back into the culture. And, and the example I gave, gave was, this is a true story how I, I started to see it, and this is three years ago and it's just getting worse now, is um, there was a government uh, RFP that came out for um, a creative brief for, I forget what the campaign was, it was something, that got, but it was to do with, with Maridim, right? Now, um, there was crew at Saatchi and Saatchi were going for and DDB and, and the other, the big agencies, the big swinging dicks are trying to get in there, you know, get, get the corporate cash, get it. One agency didn't have any um, basically Māori that worked for them. And what they did was, is they contracted in a subcontract freelance uh, creative that was Māori, got them to design up a whole new brand for a sub agency that sat underneath it, then presented this agency as a Māori led, Māori inspired um, a creative agency that is fully backed by the engine of this of this big dog. No IP or anything was, but then you rewind back and it's like, well, wait a second. If they then win that, that's millions of dollars going to this was actually overseas owned by overseas shareholders. So how is that actually? That's actually exploiting culture. And so I I, I started telling I've been telling a couple of people I'm like, you know, if 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 Maori don't step to the table to start owning the commercialization of culture, someone else is going to. And it was more of a, a bit of a warning sign. But to, to reverse back to the point of the racist side, see, I, I'm only 36 now, but I know that the views of 30 years ago when I was born to 30 years from now, I'm in this middle child bit where culture, like community has acknowledged culture, community is understand that the values are there, but there is this funky undercurrent, which we, I think we both know and we both feel it, which is there, which is probably, it's getting more... Um, uh, naked racism was, I think, the word that you, you used. A and I've been in rooms by many now where sometimes they forget that I'm Maori and, and stuff said. And then <laughs> and I, and I kind of pull up like, yo, yo, hold up for a second, Chachi. But in, in their defense, I've got a good friend of mine who was at my wedding, one of my, my good mates. He uh, lived in Wanaka. And like after years of being good mates, he said to me, he's like, you know, like, you guys are like are nowhere near what I kind of thought. And I'm like, ah, oh, what? And then explain that. He goes, well, <laughs> I'm a farmer from Southland and my family's been farmers and all this stuff. I've never met Māori. The only Māori I've ever seen is from when I watch the news and it's either police 10 seven or they're in the court docks. That's when I see Māori dim or the haka. So my experience with culture for 30 years has been this. And, and in his defense, I'm like, well, that's his truth. Cause that's all he's known. And it, it made me realize as well, uh, you know, narrative, mainstream media, public, all this other shit, right? Um, but to, to loop it back is I think there's an uncomfortable moment where New Zealand's about to have because as more and more stuff pops up, these conversations are coming to the public and it's not pretty. And, you know, recently I've seen that myself and I think it's it's showing the true colours of many in the nation. Sorry for the rant, but that's kind of where my head's at. No, look, I agree. And so, so for me, I mean, if you look at the spectrum of stuff that's happening at the moment, you say to yourself, okay, what? why is it coming out again now? Why, why is it, well, it's always been there, but but why is, why is it coming to the surface? Why is the scab coming off? And I think for me, there's a couple of reasons. One of them is, and it kind of comes back to what I said before about this government, is that, because um, I support almost all of what these guys are trying to do when it comes to to integration of culture and recognizing culture and being much more universal for me partly it's the way these guys are doing it and to be fair to be mm. fair to them it's not necessarily that they're necessarily that they're doing anything particularly wrong because part of it is just to do with 
uh, we have these preconceptions about what governments should or shouldn't do. And, and I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. A big change to the settlement process took place in the 90s. A big, the, the fast forwarding or the fast tracking of the settlement process and actually starting to deal with some of the historical issues for some iwi and actually starting to resolve those happened under the national government in the 90s. And the reason for that isn't because Labour was any, are any worse at doing it. It's because people instinctively trusted national to do it because they didn't think that they had some sort of um, a, a toolbox of things that they were trying to impose on the country and that it was just about resolving them. in the same way to, to be fair in the same way that when labor introduced those economic reforms in the in the uh, 80s the country trusted them to do it in the way that they wouldn't trust a national government to do it because they because if a national government's doing something economic we tend to have a, a suspicion that they've got a bigger agenda if a national government does something around multi issues we uh, uh, we, we tend to trust them because we, we don't think they've got an agenda in the same way that a labor government might have if you understand what i mean by that so at the yeah, moment totally. we've got a Labour yeah. So we've got a Labour government at the moment introducing some things that were they being done by a national government? I think we would just accept them. We'd say, oh well, they're they're obviously doing them for the right reasons because they don't have a toolbox of stuff behind them. With Labour, there's a distrust. There's a belief that if they're doing this stuff, something else is going on. So you've got a lot of people fearful of what that means. So when you're starting to talk about uh, co-guardianship of lakes. Um, and and control of some aspects of local government and some of the things that, that, that are currently being talked about. If, if the Nats had been doing that, I think most of us would have maybe grumbled a bit and would have just accepted it because we would have just seen it for what it was. Because Labor's doing it, we're very distrustful, those who don't support Labor, obviously. And so we think something else mm -hmm. is going on. And that's, I think, what's causing some of this stuff at the moment. So this reactionary stuff around the name of the country and, and, and a rejection of, of Tereo and some of this other stuff, I think that's where that's coming from. It's a rejection of the, of the of the environment that we're in politically at the moment, not necessarily of the actions themselves. Interesting. So, if National we're in right now doing the exact same thing, you think the majority of Kiwis for and against would actually more be for because um, they don't feel like they might have a conflict of interest, like a you know, like two two children getting to split the cookie in half, but the one that splits it also gets the first pick. <laughs> Yes, would be, to be fair, would be grumbling about other stuff. Would be having a go at them about social model, uh, social indicators and things. So, so there's always something they're doing wrong. Whatever government's in power, there's always hmm. something we don't like. But on but on multi issues, I think if National were doing some of these things at the moment, we would be more accepting of them and more prepared to give them a go. So, do you feel there is more? Do you think New Zealand is a more racist country in 2021 than 2000? <sighs> Yeah, yeah, I do, and but 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 I think that's a I think that's a reaction, as I say, to things that are going on at the moment, rather than necessarily um, anything that's real. Um, you know, you, you know, you were saying before, people love the haka and they they love certain aspects of Tadeo and they've they've been introduced into the overall lexicon. Um, it's it's so a lot of that stuff's just about speed. <clears throat> I mean. Transparency, my view on this, every kid should be taught today at school. It should just be mandatory. Part of what you learn, you should learn English and today. They're the two official languages of the country. Um, but we haven't got to that point yet. And, and so we've got, uh, you know, and you go to Europe, they learn three or four languages. So it's certainly not going to allow kids to learn two. Mm. Um, but, but there's an element of our society. So if you're going to do that, uh, the, 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 there's a speed at which they're comfortable with and the speed at which they're not. Remember where racism come from, comes from. It comes from two things. It comes from... Fear of change and fear of loss of control. Those are the two. That's the two bases of racism. But in, in any culture, not threat. Yeah. yeah. So, so, and those two things are, are front and center at the moment for people. They're, they're scared of change. Change meaning 
I might have to do things differently and I might have to accept things in a way that I've not had to in the past. And fear of loss of control, uh, rightly or wrongly, these people who feel that they have some control over how their lives are played out and they're scared that if these things are implemented, they're going to lose some of that control. So the way to deal with it is, is to try and take that fear away from people. So in a nutshell, is the simplest way that New Zealand gets rid of racism is just wait for all the old codgers and boomers to die. Is that what you're saying? Like 20 yes, years? I don't, I don't think it's just, I just, well, yeah, thanks. But you know I mean? Like, like, I do, I do know what you're saying, but I don't think it's just the old codgers. I actually think there's a lot of people of, of, of my age and even older who are actually, uh, who are a lot more predisposed to the stuff than you might think. And, and conversely, your farmer guy was a good example of that. If you go to some rural communities and provincial towns in New Zealand, you'll find people in your age group yeah. who, who still hold, hold those viewpoints. So I don't think it's just a demographic thing. I think it's more to do with where you're from and 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 what your cultural expectations are in respect of the way that you, you play your life out. Yeah, it's the it's clear that culture is going to get further intertwined like flex through through society over the next 10 20 30 years or first of our lifetime i'm wondering what you feel the split is age-wise between the naked racism that potentially exists do you feel like i'm imagining say 20 years ago it would have been more older crew that are like stuff those darkies and now there's a bit of a a, a, a younger more privileged crew like what do you think the what do you think the split is of racism now then 30 let years me, ago answer i'll answer that in a second but let me just first comment on something you just said because it's a really interesting and astute point you may not mean you may not have meant it to be astute but it was um and that is that there is a there has certainly been since the the late 70s early 80s the the emerging of what i call a multi middle class so so there has been the development hmm. of a wealthy proportion of multi dim that have have been educated uh, who have who have uh, uh, moved through society into lead positions of leadership and power, um, who have uh, and and various different professional roles, who have, who who represent now a pretty significant strata of our society, and 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 for me the new alphas, they're the new. Yeah, yep. so so not, on that, and not to be fair, you're one of them, mate. You're, you're you're an example of it, but that's been overwhelmingly well, positive. Yeah, so so on that, right? So I call it the squeeze, and so the squeeze is um, like where you're um, old enough that you've done enough shit to have credibility to be able to sit in the room, but still young enough that you know what's up. And the squeeze yeah. is kind of for for my wedding, it feels like it's like thirty eight to forty two. I'm at the younger stage of it's thirty six, but like when I look out now compared to you know twenty or thirty years ago, there's a bunch more. Let's call them if you're a old you know, sketchy racist, you call them these infiltrators, these, these new power infiltrators that are coming through and they're moving up the ranks and whatever. But if you look at the same in corporate world, it's the same thing with age, you know, if we fast forward, rewind back 50 years, there's no way in hell you would have seen the amount of young CEOs or, or female CEOs that, that would have existed. It's the same thing. And it's like the, you know, the biggest shift, I, I said this years ago was like, I think we've seen the big shift of the threes and twos becoming the ones. Right, the, the threes and fours becoming the ones and twos, where it's like that young buck junior um, digital account executive from 15 years ago is now the you know the GM or the ND or the COO or the C potentially even the CEO in times. So I think it's the same things happen within Maori dim, and maybe it's a thing of this we're slowly you know more and more voices that matter are earning credibility in the public eye for whatever it is they do in their whatever lane, and because I know what I've got to know anyway, especially in these last maybe five years is the world of back channels with 
people and influence with how they actually interact and communicate with each other. And it's so much more than I ever would have realized with, because they're all on their peers. Like, so their peers, it's all private. It's never public, but what there's always this momentum of, which you can feel is building. It's like, okay, well, you know, like one day soon we'll have a Maori CEO of a bank. One day soon we'll have a Maori dot, dot, dot. One day soon we'll have a Maori or Pacifica, Asian, Indian. It, it, it doesn't matter. It's that next wave that's sort of coming with it. So I, I agree there's, with you, but I also kind of think there is something else changing in the space, though. And that, but by the way, we've had—I think we've had most of those things. But there is something else changing in the space, which has only happened in the last five to ten years, and that is that for the first part of that emergence of again what I call the multi-middle class, um, it was within a it was within a a, a a colonial construct, if I can use that word, in the sense that um, they were people who, in order to assimilate into that part of society and succeed. They had to buy into all the other stuff that went with it, and they had to become European in their outlook. And and you know, was that right or, or wrong? White Maoris. Yeah, but basically, so yeah. That, but pretty much changed. That, tell you what's changed. That is changing now. Over the last five to ten years, and I'll give you an example of that. And we, we both know it really well. I look at somebody like Holly Bennett, who operates a successful business and is doing really well at what she does. But she but she does it within a multi context. So and there are mm. lots of Hollies out there. There are lots of people who are saying. Yep, I've, I, I'm at this level in society, but I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to do things within a construct which speaks for me and the way in which I want to convey it, rather than, than going to a colonialist uh, way of doing things and, 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 and doing them perhaps the way that they were traditionally done. Now, that's not just within Māori, that's, that's changing throughout society in mm. every respect. But it's certainly coming through in that space, and it's a healthy thing. Yeah, it's um like owning their superpowers, right? Like so, Rajna yeah. Patel does it. You know, there's a bunch in the Pacifica space that do it, and I, and I think it's awesome. It's so it's not necessarily a it's definitely not just a Modi thing. It's it's um it's you know you know kind of empowering, embracing the like culture as your superpower. But one thing I was just going to say before is um the one interesting dynamic with New Zealand, and it happens Amer in an American sport as well. Is let's say um there's a very famous um uh. Uh, Maori uh, pre TV presenter, and then there's John Campbell. I've heard multiple people talk about the Maori presenter as being a white Maori, and actually John Campbell being one of the boys, even though he's not. And so there's this funky split, but it's not necessarily around DNA, because potentially to your point, not that it's chameleon or like fitting into that world, but I think what happens is there is organically over time a long tail kickback of resentment from culture to those who actually don't embrace their own and like you know i feel bad sometimes because i can speak um uh, still potentially now because obviously live there and stuff potentially more japanese than i can te reo maori but you know i know it, i live it i breathe it but then at the same time there's this little bit of me of like man i really should and, and the answer is i should i should you know and i'm starting to you know think about how i'm going to sort of go down that that journey as well but i i was just you know be my own devil's advocate on it because sometimes culture itself that you think would embrace actually alienates if they're not like Hina my elder just put something on a TikTok today around oh you're not maori enough or you're not like at, at what point is that too because in at a macro you know you look out and culture if culture's you know resenting and fighting against itself it makes it harder for the rest of it to buy in it's, you it's asked, stuffed you asked before about the age thing do you not think do you not think it's not unlike and i don't think this happens now but I mean, I used to be involved in the National Party when I was younger, not anymore. And you'd go along to, to these meetings where they were selecting a candidate and there'd be the little old ladies knitting there and they would select a male candidate because he was a nice young man. So instead of empowering women, 
which is what they, you know, you could argue they should have been doing, and 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 being advocates for women, they would put aside anybody who, any woman who was standing up for candidacy, and they would they would promote a man because he was a nice young man. Do you not think it's kind of the same thing? It, there's this this element of, uh, you don't. Well, sure. that would be the, the token. No, 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 no. So, so that would be like the token ticks the box shit being safe, but that's out of. No. Um, they, 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 but they were like, oh, you know, it's a, it, it seems like it's a low risk entity, right? Is there's lesser kickback. The the danger I have now within culture too is there's a split of, well, if you decide to do use culture, engage with it, or say if it's for a role or businesses and bits and pieces, are you doing it because you need to tick the box or whatever? And I think I've told you this story before. Like this HR guy rang me up. I was looking at doing. I thought I was going to change New Zealand about three years ago by I'm going to get on a bunch of boards and I'm just going to go shake the tree, man. I'm going to go stuff the shit up. It's going to be epic, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, some uh, smart advisors will be like, do not do that. You will drain. <laughs> anyway, HR person rings me up and goes, hey, you know, super interested in this role, publicly listed company, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, this is it. Like, dude, I'm going to get on. I'm going to crush the shit. And then he said, yeah, because the CEO really wants to do something about this Maori and Pacifica thing. <laughs> And I flipping let him up. And I was like, all right, so just to be clear, we're not having this conversation because the value I can genuinely bring to the table from the experience I've done. Literally, this conversation is because you want to tick the box shit for some some brown Pacifica stuff so you don't look so racist to the shareholders. Stuff you guys. And so I just like, let me ask you a question on that, which you might disagree with. But but so in the bigger picture, because I would argue that most of, actually, most of the, the, the progress that's been made not just in New Zealand, but worldwide around uh, 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 acknowledgement of Indigenous peoples, has actually been tokenism, but that tokenism has led to some good, led to some good outcomes. So, so I would argue that in the long haul, maybe that was part of the process, and maybe you sort of you grin and bear it in the early days, and the result of that is that you get a better outcome in the longer term, and it ceases to be tokenism. It does. It's, it's happening because people want to do it because it's the right thing to do and because it's better for their businesses or better for their, for, for, for their societies. But but all all positive affirmation starts with tokenism. It must, by definition. Well, I think f for me it was more like, do I want to engage my time into a vessel that isn't genuine about its that. intent to engage? And I, I think... In your, in your case, I understand it, but 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 in, in a society... No, no, yeah. So, so I've had a friend that actually I told about it, and then she said, "You should have done it just for the fact to do it, because then it shows that it can be done." And yes, they're a bad egg, but it can be. And then, yes. Yeah, so maybe to your point, you know, maybe in the long tail of 10, 20, 30 years, I may regret that. But I know that well, well, there'll be more than enough opportunity. Yeah, but I, I think more of it will will come. I just don't want it to be. Like, I don't want culture to be the same wave as, like, male-female rights, LGBTQ, let's put a rainbow stamp on it, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, no, they're all inclusive and it's all there, so I want to actually engage with it. Don't think of, like, culture as in a campaign, you know? Like, let's do something about culture. What do we need? Okay, let's get let's get the brown guy in to come and do the poor fitty. Oh, yeah, okay, cool. Let's say Kyoto on, you know, it's like, just copy-paste shit. Like, what are you doing? Like, do you, people can't read through all that shit now. But look at where we've come from, Robert. Remember where we've come from. We've come from a, a colonial construct, and I know people don't like that term because of the the, the implications yeah, of it, is. but we, we've, we've come from a construct which was an occupation by an occupying power where that occupying power left, but a hell of a lot of the people who came over as part of that process remained here, and so the, the, the prevailing culture for a long period of time came from that tradition. So if you're going to break through that, 
you had to do something. And whether that was about tokenism or recognizing indigenous people or any of that other stuff that's happened over the last 50 or 60 years, that had to happen in order to get the change that we've got now. So I, I'm, hmm. I, I think rather than look back and say, hey, say, hey that was wrong, let's look at that, acknowledge it for what it was and say, what do we do about going forward to make sure that we don't make the same mistakes we made in the past? Well, you know, part of the thing too is like on paper, the conversations that we're, we're having now wouldn't usually be happening in the public domain. And this is one of the things I've always sort of said around when I have conversations with people is like, I'd rather do it publicly so it has the conversation be heard because outcomes don't change at the end through execution unless people are educated. And if they don't get educated, it's because they don't get awareness. And if you don't, someone starts to build the awareness, then you never get to external execution, right? So my brain's always just been like, for right or wrong, and you know, my views of, of mine have definitely changed over the years, probably similar to yourself on different bits and pieces. But one thing I always find extremely fun about politics is no one knows where I stand. And it's because if I, you know, if I think about it, like, you know, grew up Māori from Waipiro Bay, so it'd be like potentially Māori party. And then I go into, uh, uh, grew up in Aranui Christchurch on the, on, the, on the sickness benefit. And so that was, you know, obviously like a labor type vibe. And then I get into, um, you know, out into the ecosystem of snowboarding and green and purity and travel and mountains and all that stuff. And then so it's green and then I get into the business hustle and that's sort of national. And then I go for techie stuff with whatever else is that, act? I don't know. And I always, when someone tries to like someone came to me recently was like, just get out of here with your, your far leaning left bullshit, whatever. And I'm like, dude, have you seen any of my stuff? Like I'm probably the most eclectic random thing because in certain things I'm like insanely one or the other I just don't think in 2021 you can ever just put one brush of a color on someone's whole being with a 360 view of the world it's so like Look, it's I, such the most like punter shit <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more it's interesting because I have exactly the same thing I read all sorts of stuff online yeah. about myself it makes me laugh because it's just not true and ironically and you know, I think I've had this conversation with you before I mean I'm, I'm a right winger in terms of economic theory in terms of the way society should be run but in social stuff I'm a socialist I'm somebody who believes that we should have a society that looks after its most vulnerable. Always have been. That's it's always been core to my personality. But when I read about myself, you'd think I was some sort of fat cat, um, you know, same as you, that 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 had these you know views of sort of throwing children to the slaughter. Completely the opposite. But people people form perceptions, and whether this is about culture yeah. or business or politics, they form perceptions based on what they think you should be relative to the label that they put on you. Yeah, and so that brings it to the next point. So I put out. Um, on April Fools, this um, thing that we're launching the um, the decent uh, uh, blockchain party done on basically real time app. So many people thought it was real, and the whole goal of it was basically saying we're going to use blockchain, which is going to be um, which is basically going to do an issue by issue real time voting, and that's how we're going to do it. Like that was the that was the thing. The underlying current of it was this idea of why can't you have a system where it's like, why do you need to get painted with one brush when it's, it's multicolored, it's a rainbow of, of everything? Why can't you have a real-time engagement platform for, for community insights around whatever's going on with how they dictate in their, um, their thing at a localized level, where money should go and what money should do? Like, aren't we just talking about like a real-time um, transparent um, voting system that, that works in the real world? And then the, the piss take was this idea of, you launch the party and the whole thing is like, just vote for the app and what and whatever comes up, you just vote for it in real time and I just do that. So you're not even the voice of the people, you are just the human vessel as the conduit for their real-time thinking for all these different things that matter. And it was funny because a couple of really smart people reached out to me and was like, 
I know what you're doing, mate. It's actually pretty smart. I get it. And then so many other people are like, oh, Rebet's launching the party. And I was about to do um, a, a deal with this one corporate thing. And then HR was like, we can't engage with him because he's launching a political party. <laughs> and I was like, oh, jeez. Oh, hey, um, I, I got a question here from Salvin. He says, uh, so Salvin Hayes is an absolute legend. Um, he's a managing partner at EY, um, Innocent Young Tahi. Uh, good conversation, gents. I agree with many comments. Apologies, I've missed this, but what raises for me is a huge challenge around dot, dot, dot. How do we avoid the harsh divisions divisions of race we see overseas and reconcile the colonial injustices against Māori that continue to play out? Well asked, yeah. Selwyn. You well, it, it is well asked, and I mean, I look particularly at where you are at the moment in the US, which for me is a you know it's, it's a festering scab when it comes to racism. It's always just below <laughs> the, seriously, which is always just below the surface. It's a scab. look. That's not fair on everybody in the states because it came out last people. year, though. Everyone knows that. Yeah, it, it did indeed, and we've never had that. And maybe we haven't had it because because we've repressed a, a group, or maybe we haven't had it because for all of our faults, we're still basically a family that tries to sort of resolve its differences. I think the answer to that question, though, is don't do what the Americans do, and that is turn it into this protracted identity politics, which is if you're a Republican, basically you believe in this particular set of values, which includes, and this is unfair on my Republican friends, but I'm going to say it, a kind of a, a brand of racism because that's part of the badge that you wear. We don't do that in New Zealand. National and Labour have never had divisive politics, well, so with the exception of, with all due respect to Don's period in the uh, in, in the, the early 2000s, uh, the sort of the iwi kiwi thing. That's not generally something that's entered the lexicon in this country. Let's make sure that it never does because if, if that stuff starts to slip in here, it, it, it gets into a really nasty, revolting sort of a social climate that, that, that I don't think any of us would want. Well, you know what would escalate that right now is if New Zealand had a, a, a Māori or Pacifica version of a George Floyd, George Floyd moment. If New Zealand had that, that would happen. That would spark it so far. That would, that would become so instantly divisive, potentially, if the wrong gasoline got put on it, right? Yeah, it would, except that when you look, again, when you look at the US um, and you look at who make up their police force and the whole, you know, everything from the selection process of police in that country through to, to the mm. sort of the culture of the police, that was, a, that was a moment waiting to happen. In fact, that moment's happening again and again and again in the US. It's not always as well publicised. I'd like to think, tell me if I'm wrong, Robert, but I'd like to think that in New Zealand, uh, police have always been much more integrated. And I know that there are accusations from time to time of racism, but, uh, but but by and large, we've got a police force which is made up of all elements of our society. And I just, I, I hope I hope I'm never proved wrong on this. I just couldn't see that happening here. No, no, I, I, sorry for, for context. I didn't mean uh, George Floyd where um, against New Zealand police because I'm totally with you. I mean a, sure. a moment where something happens within with within cultural community that that sparks sure. um, outrage for for that culture. Like I don't know, let's say I don't know flipping. If Richard McCall was Māori and he didn't get let on a plane or got kicked off, or some some stupid like Rosa, not stupid Rosa Parks moment, a Rosa Parks moment of something to do with culture in New Zealand, whether it be dot dot dot, you know, um, or something that would be. So go. Well, I was just going to say we do it to some degree already. In fact, we did it two or three years ago with the foreign buyers ban, which was which is overwhelmingly, if you drill down into that whole thing and looked at why we were doing it, it was mainly xenophobia and it was mainly, mainly about Asians. It was mainly about people being scared of the Chinese. Now, so, What so, does xenophobia mean? 
is that racist? Well, Asian hate, racist? But, no, racism toward anybody. It's basically fear of strangers. Oh. It means it's in its okay. purest form, I think, in Latin term. Um, but so we brought in a foreign buyers ban, which when you drill down to why people wanted to do that, it's because they saw Asian people in auction rooms buying houses. Now, when, it, when you drill down on it, you actually found out it wasn't anything like the problem we thought it was. But even if it had been, the rationale behind it was nothing to do with economics or house buying. It was to do with the fact that these Asian people were buying houses. So there is an element of that already present in our society, and it's always there. Um, and, and it's something that we need to clamp down on. The, the, the flip side of that, and I remember back in the 80s, uh, the 70s and the 80s, that there used to be, uh, we, we brought out massive numbers of, of Pacific Islanders to do, let's be blunt here, to do jobs that, we, that, that, that Kiwis didn't want to do. So, so we brought Pacific Islanders to do those jobs in the, the factories in South Auckland. And there was huge uh, uh, conflict between Māori and Pacific Islanders for about 15 years. Uh, and, and every time you'd, you'd pick up the paper and somebody had been killed and gangs were, were, were battling with each other. Most of that's worked its way through. And the reason for that is because those people had kids and those kids were Kiwis. And they've just gone on and got on with their lives. And so those divisions have gone. I hope with the Asian folk that we've got here at the moment, the same thing happens. And you can argue it's already happening. That, that, that in 20 years' time, those Asian kids will be Asian ethnically, but they'll be Kiwi in every other respect, whatever that means, whatever that means in terms of a social construct, and and that, and that we with the, the nonsense that we're dealing with now has largely disappeared. But I don't know whether that's going to happen or not. Mm. Um, awesome. We've got a bus to move, but I really appreciate your time. Always good good banter and um it's cool seeing you know even if you're fully one side crazy on one or potentially not the other i just always find it interesting to see other people's perspective which eat different bit and it will obviously change over time too because i know that how i think about the world now at the way i see it at 36 is going to be different at 46 or 56 or 66 yes, or 76 or, or 86 i think the key but with it is you know if it, Oh, mate, I'm, <laughs> dude, I'm like one word away from going robot. I'm going to allow at least 115 because I've got this thing in my head that if I was born in 1985, I'm going to die in 2100. That gives me 115 years. And then by 2100, New Zealand will be renamed to Aotearoa. I love your plan. I love your plan, mate. I love your plan. I'm, go I'm going like, I mean, I've got to, you know, <laughs> stay off the flipping, the, the pies and the coronas. But, you know, apart from that, like, you know, we'll, we'll get there. Um, if people want to check out um, who you are and what you're up to, obviously you've got ashleychurch.com. Um, what else can they do? With, engage with you? you? You troll away on Twitter. You do stuff on LinkedIn. What can they do? Where can they go? Look, if you just Google my name and put a, uh, and put a the last 12 months as a search parameter, that'll give you a pretty clear idea. There's lots of stuff across all, you know, property's obviously a big one, but I do a lot of social commentary tied up with the taxpayers union um very very strongly involved with the israel institute so there's a whole lot of stuff that if people are interested in those views i welcome them to go and have a look mega i appreciate it brother always good chatting stay out of mischief and i'll talk to you in a little bit thanks brother sounds good mate talk soon be good stay out of mischief <laughs> i'll try <laughs>